0: Look, I've studied a lot of eschatologies in the 40-plus years I've been a Christian. I have a book back in my library, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. It went out of print in 1989, if you didn't figure that out.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the sixth chapter of our study of the Revelation. This chapter outlines the first of a series of judgments that will befall the earth during a seven-year period called the Tribulation. We've looked at the first four judgments, which are shown as riders arriving on four different colored horses. We know these as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And this week we've been looking at the fifth and sixth judgments the judgment that will occur because of martyrdom of the church during the tribulation, and today we'll also look at the sixth judgment, a terror beyond anything ever before experienced. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he addresses the persecution that will take place during the tribulation by those who become Christians during that time period.
0: Now while persecution is bad in this day, it's nothing compared to what is going to happen. I went to Yad Vashem, been there many times. It's the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And the last time I went, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before, but I stopped, I mean, there's so much to see, and stopped at one of the exhibits of Adolf Ekman. He was one of Hitler's men who was responsible for the death of more Jewish people, five of the six million people. And he wrote these words, I wrote them down. I shall leap in my grave for the thought that I have five million lives on my conscience is to me a source of inordinate satisfaction. He loves the fact that he took five million lives. Well, you can take that man's attitude, and multiply it 10,000 times 10,000 times, and that will be the attitude of unbelievers hunting down and murdering and butchering tribulation saints. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you read that, maybe you're asking, listen, a Christian Even those who are martyred like Stephen, shouldn't they be praying, Father, forgive them? Is that not what Jesus did? Father, forgive them. I have no doubt that when these saints were on earth, they took Jesus' advice, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But they're not on earth anymore. These are saints who are in heaven, and they're asking a question, and the question is not knowing God's exact schedule and what he's going to do. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer, and so you've heard of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, The the verb imprecate means to to call down judgment or calamity, and I know some people say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, and... I took a whole course on him in college with Peter Kraft, who's considered one of the leading experts in the world on C.S. Lewis. And I read a ton of books by him, but he said a lot of stupid things. And especially in reference to the imprecatory Psalms. I use his book, Mere Christianity. He was an incredibly bright man, and God certainly has used his book to get people to think about who Jesus really is. But I think he remained a baby Christian in light of some of the incredibly stupid things he said. And I won't list them all this morning, but for instance, in reference to the imprecatory psalms and his reflections on the psalms, he calls them terrible, contemptible, devilish, profoundly wrong, and sinful prayers. No, they are not. They are part of the word of God. God inspired them. And they express a legitimate truth. We are commanded in Ephesians 4, as Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, be angry, but do not sin. If someone tried to seduce your little girl or give your children drugs, there would probably rise up in you a moral righteous anger, a moral outrage. That's what these saints in heaven are feeling. God's people are being butchered, beheaded by the millions. And they're asking God, how long, how long? This is not a prayer for personal revenge. It's a prayer for the vindication of who God is, that he is holy and true. In one sense, we pray it every time we say the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because with that petition comes the wrath of God Almighty Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. They're under all this turmoil and persecution. And Paul says, look, they're going to get their day. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution... Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, that's the essence of eternal life. To those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, what will happen? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now I know there are certain so-called pastors today who take great pleasure and they boast in the fact that when they preach they never mention hell and certainly not flames. But listen, the message that we preach is a message that both wins and it warns. And we cannot preach part of the truth. If you preach part of the truth, it becomes an untruth. We're to preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Here are God's martyrs in heaven. They are acknowledging, God, you are holy and true. Listen, King David sang it. The apostle Paul promised it. The tribulation saints here pray for it. And I know while we are living in a day of horror, it is going to get much, much worse. And God's saints are crying out. And by the way, while we're here, sometimes Christians say, when you get to heaven, you'll get all your questions answered. No, you will not. These are people who are in heaven. They're asking a question. How long? Oh Lord, you don't automatically know everything when you get to heaven. Only God is omniscient. We will be learning throughout all of eternity. But notice, in addition to the cost of their testimony and the prayer in their hearts, consider the salvation from their God, the salvation that comes from God. Verse 11, and there was given to each of them a white robe. They are given white robes. They don't earn these robes. These robes are an expression of God's grace for the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus who gives us this grace, but I want to tell you, unless you have a white robe, unless you've received the grace of God, unless you have believed on the Lord Jesus alone to save you, you won't be meeting God in heaven. Jesus told in the parable of the wedding feast, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to them, friend, How did you come in here without the wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need a robe and it can only be given to you. You'll never earn it. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. They're told just to wait just to rest, God's timing is perfect, rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. That represents the omniscience of God and it represents the care of God. God is looking at each number and when the final martyr's life is taken, Jesus will be told, go finish it up. He will come at that point to rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. God sees everything that is happening in your life. Someone asked me, where was God two Sundays ago when that gunman came in and took out all those believers who went from an earthly sanctuary immediately into a heavenly one? He was in the same place when he watched his son at Golgotha. He sees everything that is happening. The very hairs on your head are numbers, and the days that were written in his book, even before there was yet one, were all recorded. Listen, this nonsense of a prosperity gospel, that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and die peacefully if you have enough faith, doesn't even begin to match what the Word of God says. Now, I'm almost done. You may not think I am. You say you're only halfway through the outline. Stay with me. We now move from the world of the tribulation saints in heaven to the world of the tribulation sinners on earth. And so John, once again, reveals three truths, not only about God's saints, but now of these unrepentant sinners. First, we learn what the tribulation sinners see. We learn what they see here in verse 12. I looked... When he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And I told you when we began chapters 4 through 18 that there are some who are called preterists from the, Greek word, uh, from the Latin word preter, that means past. And they say everything in the Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, unless they're full preterists, and they're really wacky, uh, it was all fulfilled before 70 A.D. That is a faulty hermeneutic. Now, I love Hank Hanegraaff and R.C. Sproul, but they're wrong. They do a great injustice to the Word of God when they say this is history. It is a faulty hermeneutic. It, 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 it ignores the plain teaching of scripture and it obliterates all of those times where Jesus said, watch, look, be ready. And ultimately, as I will show you before we are done, it fosters the spirit of anti-Semitism. Now, I don't think some of those guys like Luther and Calvin and I have a love-hate relationship with them. And we're going to read some things about Luther and Calvin that will make your skin crawl concerning what they said of the Jewish people. But it fosters a spirit of anti-Semitism to take the preterist view. Look, I've studied a lot of eschatologies in the 40-plus years I've been a Christian. I have a book back in my library, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. It went out of print in 1989 if you didn't figure that out. But unless there is some reason to take a verse, or part of a verse symbolically, then based on what God gave us within the scripture, on how to interpret the scripture, we take it at its plain face, literal value. Not to mention, this cannot be just symbolic, because at the end of the chapter, we're gonna see the world in absolute mortal terror. And so there are six disturbances that John highlights. Now, to bring you back where we are, here's a chart. Um, Remember, we're still in the first three and a half years, the four horsemen, the altar representing those who are identified with Jesus through martyrdom, and then some disturbances in the heavens. Now we're going to see a number of times some disturbances in the heavens, not to be confused with the final disturbances that happen right before Jesus lands upon the earth. So we're still here in the first half of these three and a half years. Notice first we are told that there is a great earthquake. A great earthquake comes, mega seismos. Seismos gives us our English word seismology, the study of earthquakes. This is a big earthquake, a earthquake. Mega earthquake. It's not the big one yet. There's three earthquakes in the Revelation. The real big one is yet to come. Second, we're told the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. It's like the heavens are mourning. God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel said, in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in that. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the sun will be made like black goat's hair. And that shouldn't totally surprise us. It's happened before when Jesus hung on Golgotha for three hours. At midday, it was like midnight, dark as could be. Third, we're told, and the whole moon became like blood. This is a simile. It didn't become blood. Hos, hema, like blood. Now, a couple years ago, a book came out, several books came out about the four blood moons. People were asking me, are you going to preach in the four blood moons? I said, no, it has no relevance. In fact, one family left over that. They thought I was foolish and I needed to warn the people. The only blood moons that are of significance are those that you will find here during the tribulation period. Fourth, verse 13. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe, f- unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now, the word stars here... The word star, again, takes on meaning and context. We'll see John uses it sometimes of an angel. Are these literal stars that fall to the earth? Can't be, because in Revelation 8 and verse 12, he speaks of the stars that are very much in place in the heavens above. He's using what we call the language of observation. We have a dock in our neighborhood, and sometimes I'll take my wife down there, and we'll Look at the sunset, and I'll hold her hand, and I'll say, "Will you look at that beautiful Earth rotation?" No, that's not what I say. I say, "Will you look at that beautiful sunset?" Now we know the sun doesn't set; the Earth rotates. That's the language of observation. This morning, the weatherman said the sunset will be at five twenty-one p.m. Sun doesn't set. This is the language of observation. This is what we often call shooting stars. In fact, the word is aster that can be used in the Bible, in and outside of the Bible, of any lumen body in the sky, even of the sun and of the moon. We see stars shooting across the earth and we say that's a falling star. Listen, if a star hit this planet, the planet wouldn't exist. This is the language of observation. Aster, maybe an actual asteroid. In 1908, an asteroid hit Siberia and it wiped out 700 square miles of forest. This is a star shower like the world's never seen. Some of you know of the famous star shower on November the 13th, 1833, where literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stars were shooting across the sky and people literally fell to their knees and they were begging God for mercy. Well, this is the star shower like the world has never seen that's coming. The fifth disturbance, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, don't ask me how that will happen because I don't know. But somehow, as John observes, it's like the shriveling up of paper He can describe some kind of an effect that's happening in the atmosphere. And 6, he says, every mountain and island were moved out of their places, literally. If these are asteroids, these will be God's bunker busters. They will literally move mountains. And if you've ever seen an earthquake, you know what it can do, or a volcanic eruption. And people in every respect will lose every sense of security that they might have had. God is sending a message to the world to repent. Secondly, we learn about the tri- what the tribulation sinners say, what they say in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich men, and the strong, and the slave, and the free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, we've seen already that seven is a number repeatedly used in the revelation of completion. And so, God gives a sevenfold classification of people. First, the kings of the earth. That would be the heads of states, rulers, presidents, prime ministers. He mentions, secondly, the great men. Those are high-ranking men, like maybe senators in our nation. Third, he mentions the Keliarchos, the commanders. Those are leaders of small armies. And even the commanders, even the five-star metal-decorated warriors will cry like children cowering in a cave. The fourth group are the rich. Not even the rich in their bunkers that men here are building will be able to hide from God. The fifth group are referred to those who are the strong, the dunitas. These are what we would call the movers and the shakers. Sixth and seventh, the slave and the free, meaning everybody else. Listen, no one will be able to escape. I think it's interesting that God especially highlights five categories of the great because the great think that somehow they can escape God with their money and their power and their prestige. After all, they're the president of the United States or whatever title they may have. But none will escape. And so they say, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. By the way, Jesus quoted this verse from Hosea. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and on the hills, cover us. I mean, these earth shattering events are gonna create the biggest prayer meeting in the history of the world, but they won't be praying to Father God. They'll be praying to mother nature. They won't be praying to the rock of ages. They'll be praying to the rocks. Fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, that's very revealing. They know the source of what is happening, but their hearts are so obstinate, so hard, so indifferent, because they would not believe, they could not believe, Jesus said, and all they do is rebel, fall on us, even though they know what is happening is coming from heaven. Third, we learn about what the tribulation sinners surmise. It's in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's a rhetorical question. Who is able to stand? Absolutely no one can stand against the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we are so accustomed to emphasizing the meekness and the gentleness of Christ that we forget His holiness and His justice. The same Christ who held the children went in and cleaned out the temple. God is holy, and God's wrath is an expression of His holy love for what is right and His hatred for what is wrong. You say, how does this apply to me? Let me give three applications as we close. Three timeless lessons I am reminded of from this chapter. Number one, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. You know, the book of Revelation dismantles the false doctrine that God is so loving that somehow he'll never judge anybody. Revelation also dismantles what you hear a lot of unsaved people do. They say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, I don't buy him. I only embrace the God of the New Testament as if somehow they are different. They've never read the Bible. The Bible is clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love to quote that verse, God is love, but we don't like to quote the verse, God is a consuming fire. We love to quote the verse, the one who believes in the Son has life. But we don't like to quote the second half, the one who refuses to believe the son, the wrath of God abides on him. Second, I'm reminded that you cannot hide from God. You cannot hide from God. King David spoke of the impossibility of being able to hide from God in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And so he proposes various directions. If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave in Sheol, behold, you're there. And then he proposes hiding in the darkness, but he says, no, the darkness and the light are alike to you. And for David, he finds great comfort in that, that God is always there, that he is always watching from the moment of conception until the time he takes him home. But listen, the lost try to hide They try to hide in their riches. They try to hide in their fame. They try to hide in their titles. But you cannot hide from God Almighty. Man is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Third, I learned from this passage, you will never be able to stand for Christ unless you stand with Christ. Are you ready to be rescued from the events that are before us. If you know the Lamb, you've not been destined for the wrath of the Lamb. You've been destined for salvation. And if you do not know the Lamb, you could come back next week and find nobody here if the rapture takes place, or maybe just a few. You say, Pastor, I don't like all this talk about wrath and judgment. In fact, Pastor, I don't like your preaching one bit I think I'm going to go home and listen to Joel. He makes me feel a whole lot better. <laughs> listen, you can soften the truth all you want, but you can never, ever change the truth. Who is able to stand? That's the closing words of the sixth seal, and it raises an interesting question. Nahum said it these, in these words, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Asaph said it this way in Psalm 76, you even you are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Listen, apart from a second birth, apart from being born again, you will never stand. Without Jesus, you will do what Adam and Eve did. You will hide. But when they were hiding, God came after them and gave them skins to wear. Uh, The first death in the universe took place. Blood was shed and God was teaching them without the shedding of blood, ultimately Messiah's blood, there is no forgiveness. Have you found that forgiveness? It's only through the Lamb. You will either meet him in his grace or you will meet him in his wrath. But you will meet him. None can escape. Holy Father, we thank you today for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Father, so many of us have loved ones that we will see around the Thanksgiving table that are lost. And we didn't share with them last year or the year before or the last 10 years. But they will either meet you in grace or they will meet you in wrath. Help us to take seriously the Great Commission, to warn men to flee the wrath that is to come, to look and to pray for opportunities that you would give us, open doors as Paul prayed for, opportunities to share the gospel of your Son. I pray today, Father, for someone who's listening wherever they may be, someone who does not have the assurance that heaven is their home, that if they were to take their last breath upon the earth today, that you would take them into your presence. Help them to know, Father, that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin, that all of your holy wrath was born out in a substitute such that they can find a way of escape if they will call upon him in faith. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help some dear soul today to forsake saving themselves. To say, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, I ask you to save me. And then give them the courage that every true child of God will express to openly, publicly, without shame, to confess you before men. Help someone today, Father, to make that decision and help us to walk this week in these truths. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
1: To listen again to today's look at the fifth and sixth sealed judgments, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478, and requesting program REV18, entitled Two Opposite Worlds. Search the Scriptures is dedicated to leading people to Christ, as well as growing existing Christians in their walk with God. If you can help support this ministry, please call 877-787-7478 and inquire about becoming a foundation partner or about making a one-time gift. Thank you. Tomorrow we look at Israel front and center during the Tribulation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.